This evening we will be in Genesis, Genesis chapter 38, so if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, we'll, we will look at this passage in sections. I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, at one time, but I'll read it in sections as we go. Genesis chapter 38. Jacob had twelve sons. Normally, who was first in line to receive the birthright, which is a double portion of, of the material blessing? Who was first in line? It would be the firstborn, right? And who was first in line to receive the blessing, which is the governmental power or ruler, the, the leadership that was passed down from the father to the son? Who was first in line for that? The firstborn as well. Okay, so Jacob had 12 sons, but his firstborn disqualified himself, Reuben, by uh, having an immoral relationship with Jacob's wife, Bilhah. That would be uh, Reuben's stepmom, or we could say uh, his father's wife, one of the concubines there in chapter 35, verse 22. And so Reuben falls out of favor with his father and therefore disqualifies himself from both the birthright, the material portion of the blessing, and the blessing, which is the the ruling uh, portion of the blessing. So then, if the firstborn was disqualified, who would then be next in line? The secondborn son, right? And so then next you have Simeon and Levi, but remember, they also disqualified themselves. Do you remember how? Okay, remember their sister Dinah was raped by Shechem in the city of Shechem? And what did Simeon and Levi do? They, 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 they massacred the entire city, well, at least the men, uh, and uh, they did it by by um, defaming, really, the covenant that they had between themselves and God to be circumcised. They tell, oh, you know, if we want to be on our side, you need to be circumcised like us. And as they were in their uh, in their pain, the men of the city, they slaughtered all of them, every single one. So Reuben's disqualified. Simeon and Levi are disqualified. And do you know who the fourth oldest son was? Who's next in line for the blessing? And that's Judah. That's who we're going to look at this evening. Judah. Now, Judah was in no way a model son of Jacob's. When Joseph came to check on his brothers, when they were out in the field with uh, pasturing their flocks and so on, Remember what they did to Joseph? They took his coat in chapter 37 and they threw him into pit ready to kill him. But Reuben stops that, trying to get back into favor with his father, I think. He stops that. And as they're eating lunch or or whatever they're doing while Joseph is stuck in the pit, Judah comes up with the wise idea that, hey, if we kill him, we don't get any money for it, so why don't we sell him? As he sees these traders passing by, these Ishmaelite and Midianite traders, traders and so they end up selling him that was Judah's idea so he's in no way a model son and what's amazing about Judah is that after you read and find out what he does here in chapter 38 it's amazing that God still allows him to receive what's known as the blessing that is the one through whom the Messiah would come that's Judah Now, Joseph was the one who would receive the birthright, the double portion of the material blessing, okay, that normally go to the first. Joseph would receive that. But Judah is the one who receives the messianic blessing, the the governing leadership, that he was the one. 
And so, despite his utter godlessness here in chapter 38, Judah is still a conduit of God's future blessing. So let me read verses 1-4 through and we'll figure out what this passage is all about, why it's here, why would Moses ever record something like this and leave it for us. Okay, we'll read verses 1-4. through Chapter 38. This is the Word of God. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited, visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and he went into her. And so she conceived and bore a son and he named him Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kezeb that she bore him. I actually read there through verse 5. The first part of this passage, verses 1 through 26, we see Judah's impulsive pursuit of self gratification. And we're going to see several ways in which Judah impulsively pursues his own, uh, his own desires. That is, desires apart from God. And he is, he is uh, showing his depravity here. And the first way that we see that is that he befriends a godless man in verse 1. He befriends a godless man. Now, the very first words talk about Judah departing from his brothers. He left his brothers. It wasn't so bad that he left his brothers. It was that he left his brothers to go somewhere. Notice where he goes. This, this man, this friend that he, he, he takes on, Hira, is an Adulamite. That's from the city of Adullam, surprisingly. And that's a city near Jerusalem, modern-day Jerusalem. Okay? At that time, it wasn't Jerusalem. It was known as Jebus. And so, in the, if we want to think about that area, Adullam, around Jerusalem, in the broader area, what are we talking about? The land of Canaan. Okay, would, would be later called the land of Israel, but land of Canaan. And what type of people at this point in history live in the land of Canaan? Okay, here I'll give you two choices. Godly people or godless people. Godly people or pagan people. We're talking about pagan Canaanites. God did not want them to intermarry with Canaanites. And Hira is from Canaan. He's from Adullam, from the land of Canaan. And Judah befriends him. And we find out how wicked of a man he is later on in the passage by just following along and kind of involved in the whole charade that Judah puts on. But not only does Judah live in the land of Canaan and befriend a Canaanite man, he also um, marries a Canaanite woman. Verses 2 through 5. He marries a Canaanite woman. Look at verse 2. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Okay, now his wife's name was not Shua. His father-in-law's name was Shua. Okay, so that's a little bit unclear there in the New American Standard. But we'll see later that uh, in verse 12, for example... You see that Shua is actually the father. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. Okay, so Shua is the father-in-law. The wife of Judah is not named here. We don't get a name of 
of his wife. And she doesn't play a major role in the story, really. So Moses moves right on to talking about the sons of Judah that she bears. The only thing that we know about her is that she gives birth to these three sons and then she dies in verse 12. That's all we know. But we don't know her name. Uh, We know her father's name. But we don't know a whole lot about her. And so Judah moves to a place away from his family in the land of Canaan, befriends a Canaanite man, a godless man, and marries a godless woman. And in verses 6-11, through 11, he lies to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Let me read these verses and then I'll try to explain what's going on. There's really a, This passage here, this paragraph here is just packed full of stuff. Verse 6, Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. And then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shalag grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, I say Judah lied to Tamar. We'll get to that here in a second, but let me try to explain to you what's going on at the beginning of these verses. The first thing that we see in verse 6 is that Judah's oldest son, Ur, is given in marriage to Tamar. Tamar is also a Canaanite. She's from the hill country of Judah from a city called Timnah. We'll see that city pop up here when we get to verse 12. The second thing that we see is that Ur is wicked. Did you see that in verse 7? He was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what did God do to him? He took his life. Now, this is, just, this is not just an ordinary wickedness. That is, he, he was not a, a believer in God and, and, not, and not a believer in God's promises. This phrase here, evil in the sight of the Lord, is used two other times in the book of Genesis. It's used in chapter 6. Remember what was happening in chapter 6? The flood. Just before the flood took place. God looked down on the people of the world and every single person was only wicked continually. They were evil in the sight of the Lord. And what did God do to them? He destroyed all of them. Okay, So this is the type of person that Ur is. He's evil in the sight of the Lord. An abomination, Proverbs talks about, hated by God. And the other time that it's used is in Genesis chapter 19. Do you have any idea what's going on in Genesis 19? That there was a group of people that were evil in the sight of the Lord and God rained down fire and brimstone. Who am I talking about? The city of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the same phrase that's used of Ur. So we don't know exactly what he did. We don't know the extent of his wickedness, but we do know that he was not favored in the sight of God. And so now, the Ur, the oldest son, is dead. And the inheritance of Judah would now be passed on to 
not his brother, but Ur's oldest son. Ur's oldest son. But notice in verse 8, he has no children. Because now what, what uh, Judah tells his second oldest son, Onan, you need to go in and provide an offspring for your brother's wife. And that's what's known in ancient times as. Do you have any idea what that is? When brother-in-law marries, what's it called? Leveret marriage. Leveret is just a Latin word that means brother-in-law. The marriage of the brother-in-law. And what, what that meant was that Onan's responsibility to his older brother and his older brother's inheritance, even though he was dead, was to provide an offspring for Ur. That is, that it, it wouldn't be of any benefit really to Onan to provide that offspring except for that he was in favor with his father. That was the only thing. He didn't accrue any of the benefits. And so Onan agrees. He says, you know what, I'll do this. And the reason I know that he agrees is because he marries her like he was told to and he has an intimate relationship with her as we'll see in verse 9. But in reality, he doesn't agree, does he? That's because Onan knew that this son, this son of really Ur, it would be Ur's son, this son would be the one who would receive the birthright and the blessing. While Onan's other son, if Onan were now to get married and have his sons of his own, in a sense they would be disfavored. So if she, the widow, Tamar, went without children for the rest of her life, then the blessing and the birthright get passed on to Onan and to his sons. And so he, he wants that to happen. Leave her be. She's not going to have any children. At least I'm not going to have any part of it. And so with this in mind, notice what Onan do, does in verse 9. second part of the verse says, So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother." This is what you would call a primitive form of birth control. In other words, he was not going to allow Tamar to bear his deceased brother a son. He's not going to have anything to do with it. Okay? My father may want me to, but I'm not going to have any part of it. I want my own sons to receive the inheritance. And notice how God views this act of Onan in verse 10. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and so he took his life also. God responds with judgment on Onan. And so that leaves Judah with how many sons now? The two have died. One more. And what's his name? His name is Shelah. I pronounce it that way so we don't get him mixed up with the girl. Shelah, right? So just, just to kind of help us, I don't... I don't know that that's the exact uh, Hebrew pronunciation, but I'll just use that for today. And so Judah recognizes this. I have one son left. And what happens if Judah bears no sons or grandsons? Okay, he's already born sons through his wife. But what if he has no grandsons to pass this blessing down to? This, well, he's kind of cut off from the inheritance altogether. And so he knows that he needs one. And... Because, verse 11 tells us, because his older two brothers died, Judah recognized that if he gave Shalah to, to Tamar to marry, he may do the same wicked thing and be killed as well. 
And now what's Judah left with? He's left with nothing. And so he protects his youngest son and he does so by lying to Tamar because he wanted to protect his own descendants. He's not willing to trust God and say, you know what, God has given me this blessing, this birthright, and I'm going to trust Him to provide me a son and grandson. So look at verse 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shalah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. And so Tamar buys into it. She went and lived in her father's house. So do you understand what's going on so far? Alright, there is a battle for this birthright and blessing. We don't have a, a good understanding of that in our day because it doesn't really work that way in our society. But in their day, this was life. This was your future and your family's future. And so there was much uh, regard for it and, and a great battle that was going on. In verses 12 through 19, Judah defiles himself by hiring a prostitute. Let me read these verses, then I'll explain to you what's going on. After a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite, and was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And so she removed her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself, and sat in the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he, saw, he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me, that you may come into to me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her and went into her. She conceived by him. And then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. In verse 12, Judah's wife dies. And after mourning her death, Judah gets back on with life, with business time to go have the sheep sheared. And so he makes plans to go to Timnah. And the word of him coming to Timnah is sent on ahead to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who is there. And so she's thinking, it's time. Shalah has grown up. It's time for him to be given to me in marriage. For me to be given to him in marriage. And so she takes off her widow's garments and puts on her betrothal garments. That is, now I am engaged. My father-in-law promised me that I would be married to his youngest son. And so she's not going out there to be a prostitute. That's the way it turns out. But, but she's actually going out there to accept her brother-in-law, really, in marriage. And so she wears this veil. And so she comes to a road that's on the way to Timnah, and that's usually where prostitutes would hang out. Uh, on the way to have your sheep sheared, there would be prostitutes lining the streets, potentially, and these men would indulge themselves. 
And a prostitute would wear a very similar veil to what Tamar was wearing, this betrothal of an engagement veil. She'd be wearing the same sort of thing. And so he mistakes her because of her location and because of her appearance, and he doesn't recognize that it is his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Now, when he asks to go into her, we would expect this response. Look at verse 16. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. Let me have an immoral relationship with you is what he's asking for. For he did not know that it was his daughter-in-law. And this is what we'd expect her to say. And she said, How dare you? How dare you, Judah, think that I'm a prostitute? I'm your daughter-in-law. And I've dressed this way because I'm betrothed to your youngest son as you promised. And you owe him to me. You owe him to your oldest son to provide your deceased son and offspring. How dare you? That's not what happened. Hey, things change in an instant. She makes a quick decision. Because she recognized what was going on. And so she has a devious plan that comes up and is executed very quickly. Remember, if Tamar doesn't have a son, it will not only affect her her ancestry, okay, her fu- but it will affect her future livelihood as well. As long as she is alive, she will not get, get to enjoy the material and and uh, and uh, messianic really blessings that come through her. So she comes up with this plan in order to ensure that she has a son. She decides that she she would pretend that follow through on this little little charade and pretend to be a prostitute so that she could have a son through Judah. Now, the, uh, the story really uh, has an interesting hook here because she's willing to give herself so that she can have a son, but for a price, as prostitutes do. But Judah doesn't have any money on him. Remember, this is not a, uh, a cash society, more agricultur- agricultural society. And so he promised her, promises her what men in those days would promise a prostitute, A goat. I'll get you a goat. I don't have one with me right now, but I will get one for you and send one to you. This is quite a bit of money. And so she says, well, how can I be sure of this? Give me some collateral to show that you're going to send this goat. Well, what am I going to give you, Judah says. And she says, here's what I want. I want your seal and your cord, and I also want your staff. Now, the seal and the cord, the seal was probably used like, a, or, or the cord was probably a necklace to hang around Judah's neck, and he would have at the end a seal that he would use to stamp clay or a wax, uh, a wax uh, buildup that was put on an envelope or, or some sort of document to show that this is me, this is my signature, right? And, and so he'd wear it on a cord, and so she says, I want that, and I also want the staff to show, uh, obviously we, we know what she's going to use this for, if you are familiar with the story. And so he agrees. He says, well, I'm I'm going to be good with the goat and I'll I'll certainly get these things back. 
And so after uh, after having this immoral relationship, she puts her widow clothes back on and goes back to her parents' house. Or maybe in a reverse order there in verse 19. And she lives back with her father there in Timnah. And so Judah, in verses 20 through 23, tries to follow through on his promise, but he's unable to. Look at verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who is by the road at Anaim? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. And then Judah said, well, let, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. In other words, I've done my duty, tried to get my things back, and I tried to seek her out. But here's the problem. If we keep asking around, hey, do you know this prostitute that was on the road to Timnah at Anaim? People are going to kind of mock us and scorn us. Scorn me, Judah said. So we don't need to continue that. We'll just let her have them. He didn't want people talking. He wanted to appear as a good person. But at the same time, he wanted his seal and his cord back, as well as his staff. But he wasn't willing to sacrifice his reputation in the eyes of other people. So he says, just let it go. And here is where you have the climax of the story, verses 24 through 26. Follow along as I read. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. And then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shalah, and he did not have relations with her again. What a twist in the story. Three months later, someone comes to Judah and says, you remember Tamar, your daughter-in-law? She is pregnant by harlotry. She got pregnant by being a, a prostitute. And Judah, much like David responded, you remember when Nathan came to him and told him of this story that took place and David said that person ought to be killed. And what did Nathan say? You are the man. Judah doesn't see it. He doesn't see what's going on yet, but he says, how dare someone do this? So what should be the consequence of a person who's involved in prostitution and who who has a child through prostitution? They ought to be burned. And later on, Israel would be required to do this sort of thing. If a woman of Israel was involved in prostitution, she was to be burned. Leviticus 21.9 So Tamar is brought out to be executed, but she brings with her those three things that she has of his. The cords and the seal and the staff. And she says, look at these, would you before you burn me? 
and that's who the father is. Whoever owns these, can you, can you determine who owns these? And you can imagine when Judah saw those or held on to them that his heart sunk. He realized the prostitute that he engaged a relationship with was his own daughter-in-law and that now she was pregnant. And while her deceptive prostitution was not commendable, it was not commendable, she was, if you think about it from her, I'm not trying to justify what she's doing, but she was simply trying to get her son, get herself a son for her late husband's for her late husband and from her late husband's closest relative. And if Judah was not going to give Shalah, then I'll take it from Judah. I'll, I'll have a son through Judah himself. And in that sense, notice what Judah says when he recognizes what's going on at the end of verse 26. She is more righteous than I. Not that this was a righteous act of her, but that it was more righteous than Judah, showing how wicked Judah really is. And so what's going on in this passage? What are we to learn from this? Is the point of the passage, don't be bad or evil like Judah? And I think there's certainly something to learn from Judah's negative example. That we should definitely not be impulsive and pursue self-gratification at the altar of godliness and faithfulness. We should not do that. So there's something to be learned there, yes. But is there something bigger? In the larger narrative, we see the danger of Israel living among the Canaanites. That it was not a good thing that God would remind them constantly, you cannot live among the Canaanites. You need to purge them. Even when they took possession of the land, make sure you purge them out completely. Because if you allow them to remain, you will become like them. You will be involved in what's known as syncretistic worship, a mixed sort of worship where you're trying to worship the true and living God while you're worshiping all these false gods. That's the nature of Solomon most of his life. A syncretistic type worship. And so in that sense, we do learn something from Judah that we have to be careful with whom we we live. And I think there's also something we can learn with regard to to trial and persecution and difficulty in the midst of evil, like Dr. Combs mentioned on Wednesday night, that one of the most fertile grounds we possibly can have to grow spiritually is in the ground of trials, the the ground of difficulty. And so we should not be surprised when times of prosperity are few when times of prosperity are not regular. And we should thank God that He's actually using these things to bring about change and growth. But is that why this passage is here? Is that why Moses includes this? I mean, why even tell us this? Why do we need to know these things? It's so wicked. Why would Moses put this chapter right in the middle of a section where we're learning positively from the example of his younger brother Joseph. Joseph in chapter 37 is a victim. He's sold into slavery. Not by his own doing. And in chapter 39, Joseph flees from immorality, we'll see next week. 
Well, let me just suggest to you a few reasons and then give you what I think is the main reason that this is here. First, I think it fits chronologically into what is going on in the life of Judah or in the life of Jacob's sons. That is, Jacob's been sold into slavery and now while Jacob's gone, Judah commits this act of defilement. But do you think that 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 is all that there is to it? Just don't be wicked like Judah. Maybe a contrast between Judah and Joseph. This is how not to act, but act like Joseph. Maybe. I think the answer really is in the last four verses. Let's read those verses together, and then I'll summarize them and try to, to, uh, to show you what this passage is all about, why it's here. Verse 27. It came about at that time she, that is Tamar, was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first, but it came about as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out. And then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zira. You say, well, that doesn't really tell me anything. Okay, let me just try to explain here, summarize what's going on. I'll take another passage of Scripture to show you what really is going on. Tamar here, through Judah, this immoral relationship, gives birth to twins. And there's wrestling going on in her womb, much like Jacob and Esau wrestled in the womb. For first place, trying to get first place uh, in the womb of Rebecca. And although Zira puts his hand out first, Perez is actually the one who's born first, and that's why he's called Perez. His name means breach. It means he, not that he was born breach, but that he, he breached first place. He, he made it out first. And you can see that in the margin of your Bible under verse 29. He breached entry into the world before his brother. And then Zero's born. His name means dawning or brightness. Now turn with me to Ruth chapter 4, and I'll show you how this all ties in to the rest of Scripture. Ruth Ruth chapter 4. It's before the Samuels and the Chronicles, following uh, Judges. Ruth chapter 4. Now look at the end of the, of the uh, passage, end of the book. Look at verse 16. Ruth chapter 4, verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And so they named him Obed. And he's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. 
Do you know why Genesis chapter 38 is there? Show that the the father of the messianic line is Judah and his son Perez. Perez becomes a an ancestor to David and ultimately to whom? Our Lord. Matthew chapter 1, you're going to find Perez's name in there. And so, yes, Joseph does provide a positive example for us of how we should be faithful in a faithless culture, that we should live with unreserved trust and dependent obedience to bring about blessing. But what we should learn from Genesis chapter 38 is that God still brings blessing, listen to this, even through evil people. God still accomplishes what He wants. This wicked, godless character at this time, Judah, is actually used by God to be an ancestor of our Lord. Think about what's going on here in the larger section of Genesis. Why did Judah and his brothers want to kill Joseph? Why did they end up selling him ultimately into slavery? Why? Do you remember why? It was because Joseph had dreamed a dream. A dream that came from God. That he was going to be chosen over them. That he was chosen over them. So what are they trying to do? when they kill him, or when they want to kill him, and when they ultimately sell him, we're going to squash out Joseph and not allow him to rule over us. And ultimately, what are they trying to do? They're trying to stop God's plan. Here's what we should learn from Genesis chapter 38, that God will not be stopped. God will win. That even through evil, God prevails. And so what I'm telling you is something that you don't often hear. And that is that through obedience and through disobedience, through good and through evil, God is behind it all. Now let me explain that phrase for you. okay? Because that sounds a little bit shocking to our systems. We can say that God is behind the good. The Scriptures are clear on that, but is God really behind the evil? And I would say to you that God is behind the evil and He is behind the good. But He's behind the evil in a different way than He is behind the good. He is behind the good in that He always deserves the credit for it. Because He planned it, He made it happen, He he was the one who worked in the believer to do the good. But he's also behind the evil. And we know this from the book of Job. We know this from those who killed our Savior. We know this from the life of Judah. That God is behind it. That He is, in a sense, in it. Now, He is not responsible for the evil in the same sense that He's responsible for the good. Right? We always have to say that He is responsible for the good. But He's not responsible for the evil in the sense that He authored it or He forced people to do it, right? Far be it from God to do any evil. But what I'm saying is that He is behind 
evil. He's behind the evil of Judah in the sense that he controls it. That he planned it. Was it a surprise to God that Judah would be so wicked? No. Was it a surprise to God that Jesus would be crucified by wicked men? Read Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Both of them say that it was a result of God's predetermined plan that Jesus Christ was killed by these people. So there is some way that God has control over evil. The only other alternative is that God is out of control. That God is only in control of the good and the evil is reigning somewhere out here and God doesn't have any control over it. But we know from Genesis chapter 47 and Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 that when people mean things for evil, God means them for good. He uses their evil actions to accomplish what He wants. And so in that sense, God is behind it. Think back to the story now of Judah that we just considered. Do you think it was a coincidence that the place where Judah was going to have his sheep sheared was the very place that Tamar lived? Think that was a coincidence? Maybe just a stroke of luck that that happened? Hey, now I do have... God's thinking up here. Now I do have an ancestor for Judah. Not a stroke of luck. This is God providentially working to cause things to happen as He has planned. God was in it all. In the larger context of Genesis chapter 38, we see that because his older three brothers defaulted on their inheritance, Judah now would receive a firstborn status even though he wasn't a model of spirituality. And that's the nature of God's That's the mystery of God's providence. We don't understand why He does all these things, do we? I mean, why use Judah? Just let the blessing, the Messianic blessing, pass all the way down to Joseph or Benjamin, for that matter. Why Judah? Why a wicked person? We don't know. But we do know that God is providentially working and He brings about what He wants even through the sin of godless impulsive, self-gratifying people. That these faithless acts are no surprise to God. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heaven and He does what? Whatever He pleases. Job 42.2 Job says to God, I know that You are God and no plan of Yours can be what? It can't be thwarted. You can't be stopped. Judah, you and your brothers tried to stop God's plan by killing Joseph or at least selling him into slavery, and you can't stop him. God will accomplish what He wants, when He wants, through whom He wants, even if they're evil. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has everything under His control? that everything is within His sovereign realm? Or is God in heaven reeling a little bit? Frustrated? Surprised? Is He reacting? That is, 
oh, this happened over here. I better do something. Is that our God? And so what this passage is here for in Genesis chapter 38 is to show us the Messianic line, but also that if God is in control of all things, then we can trust Him in all circumstances, even the ones that seem to oppose His desires. When it seems like everything is out of control in your life, and no one's on your side, and everyone's trying to get you to fall, God is on your side. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe He has the power to control all these things and that ultimately He is bringing those things into your life for a purpose? To get you to do what He wants most out of you. Not to be filled with a large bank account or to have perfect health or perfect relationships, but to see you changed into the image of Christ. And if that means bringing about opposition, heavy opposition, the heavy artillery of the spiritual battle, if that's what that means, that's good. That's for your good. That's for God's glory. And He will accomplish what He wants. So our response is one of trust. God, I don't know what You're doing. I don't know why You're bringing these circumstances into my life. But I can trust You because I've seen You work before. I've seen You work before. I've seen You work here and I've seen You work here and that you can bring about good even through my disobedience, but that's not how I want to see your good accomplished, God. I want to see your will accomplished because you are my loving Father. I want to see your will accomplished through my obedience. We trust that what He says is right and best. And that even when we think our ideas would be much better, I would do it this way if I were in control. And I could bring about a better outcome than what God has planned. We've ultimately turned away from God and not trusted Him. So our response should be one of trust and humility. God, You are in control. I don't know why these things have happened in my life. I don't know why I've failed You so often. But I do know that You're in control. That you will accomplish your purpose. No one can stop you. No enemy of yours and mine. Okay, we're on the same side, God and me. No enemy of yours and mine can stop you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who can be against you? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your sovereign power and Your sovereign care. Lord, we are so quick 
to dismiss your sovereignty. Think, well, you don't have it under control, so let me take the reins. And that's usually when we get ourselves into the most trouble. We try to, to make things happen independently of you because we don't trust you. We haven't seen or been reminded recently of your work in the Scriptures. We haven't seen or been reminded of your work in our own lives because we have been like Judah in many ways, impulsively pursuing our own self-gratification. For that, we are ashamed. And we ask for you to forgive us. Forgive me, Father. Help me to trust you even when things don't make sense. Help us to trust You when it's difficult. Times of poverty. In times of trouble. And in times of prosperity. Help us not to forget You. Keep us under Your wings. Remind us of Your love for us. We thank You that You cannot be stopped. You accomplish all of what You want to do. In our world and even in our country, we see things seemingly spiraling out of control. And yet, when we look at Your Word, that is not the case at all. You are completely in control. And all these things that are happening in our lives and in our country and in our world are designed to bring people to You and to bring believers closer to Jesus Christ. For that, we praise You for having the knowledge, the wisdom, the power to make all these things happen. Nobody would have guessed that you would use a discarded person like Joseph to save your people. Sometimes we feel that same way. Give us contrite hearts. Humble us before you and help us to recognize that it's not the great and the powerful that You call, but the weak and the lowly and those who recognize their incapability, their inability. Use us, Lord, we pray. We need You. In Jesus' name, Amen.